It begins with openness. The willingness to come alongside someone else. To pour out. Care. Invest. It's about sharing the journey. Doing life. Together. Growing. Forging. Becoming. It's about selflessness. Caring enough to walk through the valley. Even when it's painful. To love people as Christ has loved us. It's rejoicing when they rejoice. Hurting when they hurt. Being a hand. An encourager. A friend. We were not created to wander alone. For as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. If you'll take your Bible with me today, and if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And we've come to the last message in this seven-part uh, series about seven habits of deeply spiritual people. I want to be quick to say again that by deeply spiritual, we're not talking about some kind of super Christian. We're talking about people who take their spiritual life seriously, who want to walk with God, who want to go deeper in their fellowship with God. We talk about habits. We're talking about practices. We're, we're talking about disciplines, things that we learn to do, things that we build into our lives. And in doing so, we find that deeper more rich fellowship with God. And so don't go away from this series thinking that I'll never be that super Christian he's talking about. We're not talking about that at all. We're talking about people who just simply want to walk with God, people who want to know the Lord better, who want to have fellowship with him and who want their relationship with God to grow deeper every day. Follow along with me, if you will, in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 40. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Let's pray together if we begin. Father, I thank you for our church, and I thank you for the privilege of being a part of a great fellowship like this. Lord, there's a lot of people that are starving spiritually, starving not just for the word, they're starving for interaction and community, for relationships, and they don't find it in their church. And Lord, I pray that we will always be the kind of a fellowship where people 
connect with one another and understand the significance that we play in each other's lives. And even if we aren't the one who at the moment needs the help or needs the encouragement or needs the prayer, Lord, that the person sitting around us or the persons we're in a life group with do need that. So, Lord, we're providing for others while at times we're being provided for. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to see the importance and the significance of this final of these seven disciplines, habits of deeply spiritual people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I do a lot of reading, as you can imagine, a lot of articles that come across my desk, a lot of books that I enjoy reading. I don't often read a book from cover to cover, but read portions out of a book that are of interest to me and things that I want to know. But recently, there was an article that came across my desk related to doing ministry in a post-COVID world. That's where we are. We're in a post-COVID world. And as I was reading through this article, there were two lines that especially caught my attention. This is what they said. Social isolation has really come to the forefront of our minds during this past pandemic. And this is the one that really got me. But there are so many who struggle with isolation on a daily basis, including some in your congregation. I think you'll agree that it's true that there are a lot of lonely and a lot of isolated people. And we learned the terrible consequences of that through the pandemic and what it feels like to be cut off from others. But what I want you to know today is that one of the greatest deterrents to a strong spiritual life is the absence. It is the absence of deep fellowship and deep relationships with other believers. Now, no doubt you're connected with your family members, or at least I hope you're connected with your family members, with deep fellowship and deep relationships. But the fact of the matter is we need more than just our family. We need friends that are moving in the same direction and going the same way that we're going, loving the same Savior, holding to the same Scripture that we hold. We need them to come alongside us, and we need to come alongside them to develop these deep relationships in this deep fellowship with one another. Every once in a while, I'll hear somebody say, well, pastor, I really don't need the church. I don't really need fellowship. I don't really need life groups. You know, the word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. I don't really need koinonia. After all, I've been a Christian a long time, and I've been a Christian a long time. I've been a Christian a long time, and I don't really need those things. But If that's how you think today, I want you to stop and think with me for a moment about those great redwood trees that are out in California and Oregon. You realize that those trees are massive in size. I mean, you look up and you can't believe how tall they are or how big around they are. But did you know that even a relatively mild wind can topple any one of those towering trees if they're isolated from the other trees? The redwood trees have a root system that's pretty shallow. It doesn't go down very deep. And the result is that if they were isolated from the other trees, that they would easily be toppled by some of the storms that they have to endure. But that's why they always grow in groves. You always find these trees in groves because beneath the surface, though it's very shallow, their roots interlock with one another. 
And the result is the interlocking of those roots strengthens all of the other trees along with that tree itself. In other words, we so desperately need in modern American society to be interlocked in our spiritual roots with other believers because in doing so, we strengthen not only ourselves, but we strengthen others along the way. And if we're not in that kind of a fellowship and in those kinds of relationships, it's easily to fall. It's easy to fall, I should say. It's easy to be overcome. It's easy to be defeated because the fact of the matter is God made the church where we need each other. We need each other. I know that man or that woman is extremely irritating at times, but we need each other. Because we come together and our root system interlocks with one another and the end result is that we strengthen one another in the process, in fellowship. That's what we're talking about. Relationships. They are vital to the Christian life. Authentic Christianity is always lived out in the context of sharing life with a local community of believers. You don't want to be a Ted Shushinsky. 20 years living in isolation to become the Unabomber. Living in isolation will make you go crazy. Thinking you can do the Christian life on your own without the help of anyone else will inevitably fail. As Christians, we're not only called to believe, we're called to belong. We're not only called to believe, we're called to belong. I understand that Christianity is first a matter of the individual. How do you become a Christian? You don't become a Christian collectively. You become a Christian by individually receiving the Lord Jesus Christ, personally trusting in Jesus Christ to be your Savior. But when you do that, it brings you in to a corporate body. It brings you in to a congregation of people, into a fellowship of believers. The Christian is attached individually to Christ, but he or she is also attached to other believers in a local fellowship. Christianity makes an individual believer a saint, singular, but Christianity also makes us saints, plural. We trust in Jesus, we become his child, but that brings us into the family of God. And now we have responsibilities to one another. And now we have needs that each other provides to one another. And the Lord provides through us to one another. John MacArthur is a well-known preacher, pastor, author, theologian. He writes, The Bible does not envision the Christian life as one lived apart from other believers. All members of the universal church, he says, the body of Christ, are to actively and intimately, are to be actively and intimately involved in local assemblies. There is no such thing as a Christian who is able to live on his or her own and has no interaction with other believers and just lives in the world without any contact with the local church. There is no such thing as that. Because when you trusted in Jesus Christ, you became a part of a body. You became a part of a family. 
You became a part of a grove of redwood trees where we interlock our roots with one another and we strengthen each other in the process of doing life together. Think about this story that I've read to you a little portion of here in Acts chapter 2. This day that we're reading about in Acts chapter 2 is called the day of Pentecost. It was 50 days after the Passover. Do you know what took place on Passover this year? Not this year, the year that this is being written. Do you, do you know what took place on that day? Jesus was crucified on the day of Passover. For the next 40 days, Jesus was interacting with his disciples. He met as many as 500 at one time. Sometimes he just saw one or two of them at a time. But he was interacting with his disciples, and he told them that there was something marvelous that God was about to do. He was about to do in their midst, and that they were to wait in the upper room. And then 10 days before the day of Pentecost, Jesus ascended back to heaven. And what happens? The 120 disciples of Christ, followers of Jesus, gather in an upper room and they're praying together and they're waiting for what Jesus has promised is going to come. On the day of Pentecost, it happens. There's this rushing wind, the sound of a rushing wind. The Holy Spirit comes down and indwells and fills every single believer. The church is birthed into existence. It said tongues, uh, there were tongues, the, a fire that set on their shoulder, th these believers, so that when they went out of the room and they began sharing the wonderful works of God, everybody was able to hear in their own language the message. And not just their own language, their own dialect of the language. In other words, this is a miraculous work that God is doing. And every person is listening, and finally Peter steps up in the midst of all of them, and Peter brings this incredible sermon that you find in Acts chapter 2 that talks about the death of the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. And the Jews that are listening to Peter as he, as he declares this message, they, they, they turn to him and they say, okay, now what are we supposed to do? At that moment, they have believed in Jesus. At that moment, they have trust, trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. What are we supposed to do? That's the indicator that they have changed their minds about Jesus and they have trusted in Jesus. Well, what we find out is that there were 3,000 that day that came to faith in Jesus Christ. If there was ever a service that I wish I could have been a part of, that would have been the service. No air conditioning, no padded pews, no comfort conveniences, no parking lots, no cars to get to their location, get from their houses to the location where they were meeting. It was done on foot for the most part. But there they were, 3,000 of them, new believers in Jesus Christ, and then the baptism started. 3,000 of them were immersed in the water and 3,000 that day identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, and they became followers of Jesus. And then the next words are so vitally important. Notice at verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Let's stop there for a moment. That's the teaching of the apostles. These were the men who had been with Jesus for the last three and a half years of their lives. They had heard Jesus teach. They had watched the works of Jesus. 
They had seen the miracles that he had done. I can't help but imagine that they were talking about many of those things that they had experienced with Christ over the course of their time, the things that Christ had taught them over the course of that time, including the Great Commission, that they were to go and make disciples of all the nations of the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, whatever I've commanded them. They were teaching the disciples what they had seen in Jesus. Maybe they were reaching back into the Old Testament, and they were saying, look, this was the prophecy of the Old Testament. Look how it's fulfilled in Christ. Look what it said about the coming Messiah. Look how Jesus fulfills it, the apostles' doctrine. They continued in the apostles' doctrine. Then it says they continued in fellowship. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. They continued in the breaking of bread. That's a phrase that can be understood in one of two ways. Sometimes that phrase, breaking of bread, simply speaks of the common meal that we would share together at our houses when we gather with one another to be able to enjoy a meal in one another's presence. We, we don't do that so much anymore. We'd have to go down to one of the restaurants to do that. But we break, together, break bread together with one another in a common meal of some kind. But that phrase also refers to the observance of communion or the Lord's Supper. Let me ask you a question, those of you that know enough about the Gospels. When did and out of what circumstances did Jesus institute communion? It was in the midst of a meal, right? It was the Passover meal, but it was in the midst of a meal that he, that he introduced communion and the Lord's Supper. So it may well be that when he talks here about the breaking of bread that they were gathering, they had no church location like we have. They couldn't do this at the temple where they would gather for the apostles' doctrine to be hearing the apostles' doctrine. They would have to go to each other's homes in order to do this. And likely the phrase here would include both the common meal that gave way to an observance of breaking the bread and taking of the wine so that they were observing the communion that Jesus had instituted. And then he says, and in prayers. Will you notice he says prayers plural? These early Christians apparently continued the Jewish practice of going through the three times a day praying, going to the temple three times a day in order to pray, and they would gather together and they would pray together. And can't you imagine that their prayers have taken on an entirely different understanding and an entirely different, an entirely different power? Now think about this for a moment. Anyone who thinks that fellowship, the one that I passed over and didn't say much about, anyone who thinks that fellowship is a secondary matter and not essential to the Christian life needs to pay careful attention to the passage. Luke includes fellowship in the same category, the same category as the apostles' doctrine, as worship, which the Lord's Supper would have been, a communion and prayer. He includes it in the same category. You understand what I'm saying? Fellowship is no secondary matter. Fellowship is a primary habit of the faith. Just like listening to the scripture, which I've talked about, just like praying that I've talked about, just like worship, the Lord's Supper that I've talked about, 
This matter of gathering with believers for the purpose of building fellowship and deep relationships is an absolute essential to the faith because like the Redwoods root system, we interlock with one another and we make each other stronger as a result. Even the most frustrating person in a church, you're probably looking at him, but even the most frustrating pers person in a congregation has a part to play in the advancement of our strength and our spiritual lives. Now, to have this kind of fellowship that I'm talking about, that Luke was talking about, where he places it on the same level as doctrine, on the same level as worship, and on the same level as prayers. I notice that there are at least five things that are necessary to have this kind of fellowship. The first is faith. That's the first word you write down. It's the word faith. I want you to notice that this is a community of faith. This, these are people who are centered on Jesus Christ. They're centered on the worship of Christ, and they're centered on the word of Christ, the things that Jesus teaches. In other words, this is not a country club where select numbers pay their initiation fees and their monthly dues, and they belong then to that community. This is a community of faith where Jesus Christ has paid everything for anyone that believes in him. And they can all have a part of the community, and they can all have access to the benefits and the blessings that he provides. In other words, this kind of community I'm talking about is not the kind of community that you find at the ball field. It's not the kind of community that you find at your class reunions. It's not the kind of community that you find at the bar. Do you realize why so many people like to go to the bar? Because they find other people they can connect with. Yes, they drink, but they can find other people to connect with that are like them. But this is not the kind of community we're talking about. This is a community of faith. This is a community where we are joined together around the person of Jesus Christ and around the word of God and around the worship of God. And we're all moving in the same direction and we're focused on the same person and we love him with all of our hearts. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a preacher from the 20th century. He died in 1981. He pastored the Westminster Chapel in, uh, in London, England, a famous church. This is what he says. You, talking about believers, have more in common with a Christian from another culture than you do from non-Christians in your own culture. You hear what he's saying? Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says something like this. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now listen. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion, same word, has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And then he goes on to say, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. In other words, the most important fellowship to which you belong is the fellowship of faith. 
And as a community of faith, we have a lot that we share in common. We've all been convicted of sin and received the forgiveness of our sins. We've all been crucified to ourselves and our old identity has been taken away. We've all been given a new nature and made new creations. We've all been made temples of the Holy Spirit. We've all been given the mind of Christ. We've all been provided our needs in and by Christ. We've all, called, we've all been called to lay down our own agendas, our own rights, and our own needs. We've all been given the same Father, the same eternal destiny, and the same mission. We've all been bound together by the love of Christ and made to be brothers and sisters forever. We've all been joined together in this new identity and compelled to love in the same way that we were so graciously loved. Do you hear what I'm saying? The kind of fellowship I'm talking about is the kind of fellowship that is centered around Jesus and centered around his word, and that comes when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear me today. If you're listening to my voice, you're watching or you're in this service and you don't know Jesus Christ, let me invite you. Let me invite you to come to Jesus. Let me invite you to open your heart and receive him as your Savior I mean, the benefits are that it brings you into a fellowship. It may take time to build some of those relationships, but it brings you into a fellowship of faith, a fellowship of people who have similar ideas and common attitudes and common, a common purpose and a, a similar mission, and they, we have common activities. We're all focused on Jesus. We're focused on his word. We even go out of our way at times to make sure that those who are hurting are helped, even financially helped. This fellowship in Acts chapter 2 is not the fellowship of the unbelievers. This is the fellowship of believers. This is a fellowship of faith that we're talking about. And let me just tell you something. As many problems as churches have and our church has, there is nothing like the church anywhere in this world. There is nothing like the church anywhere in this world. The second word that I noticed out of this passage, not only is it a fellowship of faith, but I want you to notice the second word is presence. In order to be a part of this fellowship, you have got to be present. Your presence is required, right? Will you notice again, chapter 2, verse 42, and they continued steadfastly. Notice the words. They continued steadfastly. Look down at verse 46. So continuing how? Daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. Back up a page to chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to what it says. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Let's say we know that we're 120 in that upper room. Let's just say that there was 119 and one of them was missing. Wouldn't that have been a shame? That would have been a shame. They continued daily, house to house, in one accord, in one place. The fact of the matter is biblical fellowship. Please hear me. Please hear, hear, this, hear this preacher's heart. I'm a pastor. Please hear what I have to tell you. Biblical fellowship cannot be done long-term from your basement, over FaceTime or Zoom, by texting or commenting on social media. 
Fellowship requires up close and personal interaction with others in the church, even those frustrating ones. It requires up close and personal interaction. I mean, throughout the scripture, we find this phrase almost 50 times, one another, one another, talking about things that believers should be doing for one another. Almost 50 times we find that phrase, one another. For instance, this is my commandment that you love one another or be devoted to one another or bear one another's burdens or be hospitable to one another. How how can you be hospitable if you're not present? Serve one another, build up one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, seek after that which is good for one another. And that's just a sampling of almost 50 times the Scripture says we're supposed to be one anothering. We're supposed to be doing things with other believers and for other believers. But if our presence isn't there, how in the world can we ever have that kind of fellowship or those kinds of relationships where we can even do those kinds of things for one another? And how do we follow what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25? Listen to it. How do you do this if you're not together? He says, and let us consider one another. There's our phrase. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Now listen, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. In other words, how do you do these things? How are we going to stir one another up? How are we going to stir each other to love and to good works if we're not getting together, if we're not gathering, if our presence isn't there? Or think about this. Did you know that as a member of the body of Christ, you have a responsibility to a believer that falls away? How do you know who falls away? How do you know who's beginning to drift? How do you know any of that if you're not together with other believers? If you're just hanging out at the ball field and you're just hanging out at the class reunions and you're just hanging out at the country club and you're just hanging out with the people that you know, aren't a part of the body of faith? How do you know when the body of faith is in need and there are members who are in need? Listen to it. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren. That's a term of, of, of a believer. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted or listen to what James chapter 5 has to say. Brethren, if anyone among you, how do you know who's among you if you're not present? If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, they, they stop showing up for the gatherings. They stop showing up when, when the church is meeting. They stop coming to hear the preaching of the word of God. He says, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul. That means a life. He'll save a life from death and cover a multitude of sins. Do you realize that God disciplines his children when they walk away even to the place of taking their lives if they continue in that pattern? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Acts chapter 5. Or think about what John says in 1 John chapter 5. 
If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. (laughs) I'm not trying to threaten you. This is a matter of God loving us, that he disciplines us. And he can discipline us even to the place of calling us home into his presence. But how do you know if someone's drifting if you're not present? How do you know where a person stands with God if you're not interacting with one another, if you don't know the people around you, if you just sit in the pew and you never know the persons around you? There has to be presence. They were together in that upper room. They were together on the day of Pentecost. That They were together from house to house. They were together when they went to the temple for prayers. They were together when the apostles gathered together, the believers at the temple, and they were teaching them the apostles' doctrine. They were together. You have to have presence for there to be fellowship. There's a third word, and that's the word time. Not only is this a community of faith that requires your presence, it requires your time. It should be obvious that building strong and deep relationships takes a little four-letter word. T-I-M-E. Boy, am I glad I counted that right. That would have been bad if there had been five letters. T-I-M-E. I'm not suggesting that We should meet daily as they were doing in Acts chapter 2. This was a special time and these were special circumstances. But the fact of the matter is we have to meet regularly and that takes time that is set apart for these gatherings. If you're going to come to church, that takes time. If you're going to gather with a life group, that takes T-I-M-E. That takes time. It takes time to become a part of a fellowship where you're deeply relating to other believers. You can't be the last one in and the first one out and expect to have fellowship and build deep relationships with the people that are a part of the church. Did you know that we all have 160 hours, 68 hours a week? That's how many hours? 24 hours a day times 7. You have 168 hours in a week. If we spend 56 hours sleeping, that's about 8 hours a night, and there's probably few of you, including me, that gets 8 hours. If I get 5 or 6, I'm happy. But they say you're supposed to have 8 hours a night. That's 56 hours. There's another 40 hours that are spent at work, and probably, if you're like me, there's a lot more than 40 hours that are spent at work. There's at least another six hours that are spent eating and or driving from one place to another. And I'll make some extra hours for the eating part. (laughs) There's another five hours that are spent doing household chores. You know what I'm talking about? Cutting the grass, doing the laundry, those kinds of things. Vacuuming the floor. Uh, If you're raising children, you probably have another 10 hours a week at practices, games, school events, parent-teacher meetings, homework help, et cetera, et cetera. And I could go on listing things that eat up our time. Is it really 
too much for God to ask that you give four to five hours a week with other believers at church and in life groups? Is it really too much to ask? Is it any wonder that our children and sometimes we ourselves are unprepared to meet the challenges of life when we give so little time to the fellowship of the church? And did you know this? The statistics say that the average Christian misses every other Sunday. Now, they don't miss every other Sunday like consistently. They may be there for four Sundays and then miss three and then be there for two Sundays and miss one. But when you average it out, the average Christian will give one hour a week and they miss every other Sunday. That means that the average Christian only gives to the fellowship of God approximately 26 hours 26 hours in a year. In a year. Did you hear what I just said? The statistics say that the average Christian will only give one hour a week for worship. That's all. They will do that every other week. That's what the average works out to be so that they're ending up giving only 26 hours a year. And then we wonder why our children are falling away, why they go off to college and they get sucked into a system that indoctrinates them in something that they don't even know what they believe. Besides, when they get there, now they're indoctrinated into something that they think is true. Is it any wonder that so many Christians fall away and so many Christians have problems? I mean, when we're giving 26 hours... And do you realize that when you multiply that out, think about that number. When you multiply it out, out of 8,736 hours a year, out of 8,736 hours a year, the average Christian gathers for 26 hours. Is it any wonder when somebody comes and they say, Pastor, why don't we do away with Sunday night? I mean, it's just another hour to come to church, and I could use that hour with my family. I could use that hour for rest. I could use that hour to just sort of relax in the couch and prop my feet up, and I inevitably want to say, well, why don't you take that hour from the ball practices? Why don't you take that hour from your recreation? Why don't you take that hour from something else? Why does it have to come from the paltry number of hours we already give to God that we rarely give to God? The paltry number of hours. Do you get what I'm saying? There was an elderly man at Christmas who called his son in New York and he said, I hate to ruin your day, son, but I've got to tell you that your mother and I are divorcing. 45 years of misery is enough. The son panicked, and he said, Dad, what are you talking about? And the father replied, we just can't take it any longer, and I'm tired of talking about it, so you call your sister in Chicago and tell her. The son frantically hung up the phone and immediately called his sister, who exploded on the phone. No way they're going to get a divorce. She says, I'll take care of this. She immediately calls her dead in Phoenix and shouts, you are not getting a divorce. 
Don't do a thing until I get there. I'm calling my brother back, and we'll both be there tomorrow. Do you hear me? The father hangs up the phone and turns to his wife with a smile and says, Okay, they're both coming for Christmas and paying their own plane fares. That's the kind of trickery and guilt and manipulation that a lot of us pastors have been forced into. How are we going to manipulate people post-pandemic to get back in the fellowship of believers, those that aren't providentially hindered, to get back into the fellowship of believers? And I've just come to the place of saying, you know, after two and a half years, it's just time to move forward, whether they come or they don't come. And that breaks my heart as a shepherd, a people, a pastor who loves the people that God's given to him. That breaks my heart. But I can't be a part of doing things with trickery and guilt and manipulation just in order to get people who know they ought to be there, who are already, before the pandemic, were giving fewer hours than they should have been giving to the gathering of believers for the purpose of worship and study of his word and prayer and fellowship together. I can't go back to those tactics. I'm not going to. I say go back to them. I don't think I ever used them, but I'm not going to go to those tactics in order to try to beg people to get back into God's church. I'm reminded of a, a scripture that was handed to me when I was a teenager. I was skipping Wednesday night services to play golf. And a young lady in the youth group handed me a piece of paper with James 4.17 on it. It was folded up, and I didn't open it when I was in her presence, but when I got away, I pulled it out of my pocket and I opened it up, and James 4.17 says, To him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it's sin. <laughs> Guess where I was the next Wednesday night? <laughs> I was back at the youth meeting. I want you to notice here what it says in Acts chapter 2. They were gathering together, and notice at uh, the end of verse 46, they ate their food, now notice, with gladness and simplicity, sincerity of heart. With gladness and sincerity of heart. That's what characterized their, get, their, their togetherness. Not a, oh no, I got to go to church again. I got to go to life group again. I got to get over there with those people again. Listen, that's not the attitude they gathered with. That indicates, if that's your attitude, that indicates something's wrong spiritually in your own life. There is no other place I'd rather be today than right here, whether I'm preaching or not. If you had another preacher, you'd probably have a better sermon. But whether you have another preacher or not, there's no other place I'd rather be than with the Lord's people. I love the gathering of believers. I mean, we celebrate together. We enjoy things together. We celebrate each other's victories. We encourage each other through difficulty. We care for each other by showing concern. We fight for each other through prayer. We share with each other through times of prosperity and poverty. We depend on each other for counsel. We acknowledge each other as family. We pursue each other for friendships. True fellowship was what set the early church apart from the world. It's what set the early church apart from the world. 
These people love each other. These people like being together. These people love doing life with one another. They love encouraging each other. They love the doctrine of Scripture. They love the prayers that are being offered. They love the worship that's being given to God. They weren't just there for some kind of social interaction. This is a community of faith that requires time, that we gather together with other believers. It requires effort on our behalf, and we come together to be more than just an every other kind of Sunday Christian that gives an hour. Let me ask you a question. Do you think an hour a week, every, excuse me, an hour uh, every other week, twice a month, an hour every other week is going to get the job done in changing you into Christ-likeness or in affecting the world around us? This whole matter of fellowship requires these things. It requires us doing life together. Number four, and I'll move quickly, it requires commitment. I'm not going to spend much time here, but true biblical fellowship takes commitment from fellow believers. I want you to notice the words again. Notice verse 42, and they, what are the words? Continued steadfastly. Those two words are the translation of a single Greek word that mean to give careful attention to, to be devoted to, to be committed to. I especially like to be devoted to. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to fellowship. I think the Message Bible, if you've ever read it, it's a paraphrase. Be careful when you're reading it, but it's a paraphrase of Scripture. I think it gives a good understanding of uh, verses 42 and 46. Listen to it. They committed themselves to the teaching. They committed themselves. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal, and the prayers. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home. Every meal was a celebration, exuberant and joyful. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that would change the community around us if they saw our community that way? That's a pretty good description of how a fellowship is to function today and every day. Now listen to me. Some commitments in life are providential and they're out of your control. If you have illness or sometimes age-related things, there are things that are providential that are out of your control. But other commitments are a matter of priorities and reflect what people feel is most important in life. So let me ask you, what are your commitments saying about your spiritual life? What are they saying to your family about spiritual life in general? And then finally, I find here sacrifice. One commentator on this passage says, fellowship it was important to these early believers to spend much time together. These hours would have passed in discussing the apostles' teaching, encouraging and challenging each other and enjoying one another in the family bond that the Spirit created. This fellowship, he says, also extended to a tangible manifestation of love for one another that found expression in sharing with the poor members of this new community. Isn't that what they did? Verse 45, they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Please, please, don't come to me after the service and say, there's a good example of socialism or communism. They owned these possessions. 
They were in their control. They weren't made to sell them. They voluntarily and willingly sold their possessions, and they gave them so that others could have their needs met because their needs were being met. In other words, they were sacrificing for someone else. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul talks about when he talks about the Jerusalem church? They're hurting deeply. A lot of people have lost their jobs because of persecution. Nobody will hire them because they're Christians. And so Paul goes to the Gentile churches, the churches at Macedonia, to the Corinthian church, and he says, look, will you help these churches? And the Corinthians said, yes, we'll give to that. We'll make sure to give to that. A year later, the Corinthians haven't taken care of it. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and reminds them about their promise. He uses the Macedonian churches and say, look, they did this. Now you do this. He even uses the ultimate example of Jesus who gave himself. He says, get this done. Lay by yourself in store every week so that you've got this offering to be able to give to the Jerusalem believers. In other words, they were displaying a sincere concern and compassion and love for other believers in need. You can't do that if you're not a part of a fellowship. You don't know what other people need. Fellowship requires some sacrifice of our time, of our talents, of our treasure. It means getting involved in other people's lives and letting them get involved in your life so that the two of you can create a bond, a bond of fellowship, a bond of love where you're doing life together and you're helping each other and you're concerned for one another and you're praying for each other. That's what the church is supposed to be. Don't you think that's especially important in a society where we are dealing with anti-Christian, anti-God philosophies? that hate the Christian and hate, hate God's church, God's true church? Don't you think we need each other? Don't you think we need the encouragement and the gatherings together? And that's why we have life groups. There'll be some fellowship that'll be done here, but really it's going to take more than the time you can give here. Uh, I had a man, we, he and his wife, Mary and I, ate with him last week. By the way, we all make fun when we say fellowship. That just means food. Hey, don't laugh about that because you look how many times the fellowship was taking place over a meal. I tell all of you life group leaders, you don't need to eat less in your life group. You need to eat more. There's something about sitting down at a table and enjoying food together that enables you to connect, connect with people that are across from you. We need to be in the kind of situation in our life groups where we're doing life together and we're opening up our lives and others are opening up their lives to us and we're honest about our needs and we're honest about our hurts and we're honest about our joys and we're honest about our successes and we're honest about our frustrations, where we're spurring one another along. There'll be some fellowship that'll take place before and after, but as this man sitting at the table with me last Sunday night, he and his wife said, we like the second service better than the first service. And I thought, mm, maybe my sermon's better in the second than the first service. And he said, that's not it at all. He said, in the first service, you've got to get everybody off the parking lot as quick as you can. After the second service, you can stand around and talk. There's no hurry. I thought that was great. I'm going to start going to the second service. 
We can stand around and talk and we can share life together. We don't have to run off, but that's what we do, especially in life groups. Listen, all you life group leaders, if your idea of a life group is the impartation of information, you have missed the greater part of a life group. We want to impart information that is biblically accurate, absolutely want to study the scriptures, but fundamental to what being in a life group means is connecting with other believers and getting to know those other believers so that you're all doing life together. You're loving each other and caring for each other and you're reaching out to each other. And sometimes you're correcting one another and you're guiding one another and you're listening to one another and you're praying for one another. You're practicing all of the one another's. Actually, I think probably we need to, in our life group, start this year sort of like AA starts. You know how when you go to an AA meeting, used to at least, I assume it's still true, I hadn't been in a while. <laughs> it used to be you'd sit down and you'd go around the room, hello, my name is David, I'm an alcoholic, and I've been, I've been clean for three, for three months or six months or whatever it is. I can't help but think that in our life groups, we don't need to... Take a little model of that and say, hello, my name is Mike, and I'm afraid of losing my job. Hello, my name is Mary, and I can't pay my bills. Hello, my name is Jennifer, and I don't understand why my teenage daughter won't talk to me. Hello, my name is Adam, and I'm afraid I'm going to die. Hello, my name is Teresa, and I don't like myself. Hello, my name is Henry, and I have no idea of how to be, good, how to be a good father because my dad left us when I was five. Hello, my name is Lori, and my heart is broken. Hello, my name is Peter, and I'm depressed. Hello, my name is Rebecca, and my husband just left me for another woman. Hello, my name is Robert, and I'm addicted to pornography. Hello, my name is Aaron, and I want, I want you to like me. <laughs> I'm looking at people that are just like me. You don't want anybody to know that you have any problems and you have any pain and you have any failures and you have any doubt and you have any fears. And so you come to a gathering like this and you, you, know, you force a smile and you give a wink to somebody and you pronounce these empty words. Oh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. How about you? Couldn't be better. Can't complain. <laughs> That's not fellowship. Now, I'm not talking about going to a life group and spilling your guts. <laughs> and I'm talking about going and opening up your heart and saying, I need the help of other believers to do life together for the cause of Jesus Christ. Because I've got news for you. There is nobody sitting in front of me and nobody standing on this stage, which is me alone, <laughs> that's got it all together and is perfect, and doesn't need help. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you this. I, I got to hurry here. I, I, got, I, got, I got a little bit more to say. Stay with me. This is the last message. We won't be coming back here. Listen, a few weeks ago, I stood here in this pulpit, and I told you about how I went through a period of depression earlier this year that lasted several weeks. I couldn't pull myself together. I had to miss two Sundays. I couldn't get a sermon together. I was so depressed because of the physical issues that I'm dealing with, still dealing with. I couldn't pull things together. Do you realize that after I stood in the pulpit and I said those things, I had more positive comments given to me than I have had for the last 10 dozen sermons that I've delivered? Because everybody that came to me, they said, you know what? 
I didn't think preachers had problems. I didn't think preachers ever got depressed. I didn't think preachers ever had struggles to go through. I got news for you. Just think of the struggles Mary has to go through being married to me. C.S. Lewis, the writer and the Anglican theologian, said, Friendship is born at that moment when one man says to another, What? You too? I thought that no one but me. In that moment is when real fellowship in real relationships get started and get built. There was a farmer that had just relaxed on his front porch when the newspaper boy delivered the evening paper. The boy noted the sign, puppies for sale. The boy said to the father, to the farmer, excuse me, how much do you want for the pups, mister? The farmer replied, $25, son. The boy's face dropped. Well, sir, could I at least see them anyway? The farmer whistled, and the mother dog came running, followed by four of the cutest puppies you've ever seen. And they are cute, aren't they? And then another pup came straggling along, dragging one hind leg. The boy asked, what's the matter with that puppy, mister? The farmer replied, well, son, that puppy's crippled. I should put him down, but I just don't want to. The boy reached for his collection bag, took out a 50-cent piece. Please, mister, I want to buy that pup. I'll pay you 50 cents every week until the $25 is paid. Honest, I will, mister. The farmer replied, but son, that pup will never be able to run or play. What do you want with him? And the boy reached down and pulled up his pant leg, exposing an iron brace, holding a twisted leg. And he said, mister, that pup is going to need someone who understands him to help him in life. And that's what life groups are about. It's sometimes pulling up the pant leg and say, yeah, my leg is deformed like yours is. Now, let me tell you, we can go together and we can, we can move forward together. We can help each other. That's why we have life groups. That's where you find the greatest amount of fellowship, and that's why I pray that in the fall of 2022, you will find yourself a life group and get plugged in. You say, Pastor, they don't have one in my age bracket. That's God's calling for you to start one. Are Michaela and Jonah in this group today, this morning service? Are they in this first service or second? They're in the second service. Okay. Michaela and Jonah, what, are they in their late 20s, middle to late 20s? Starting a new couples group for that age bracket. You say, well, I'm single. I, I, and then you do life with people who are single. Thing is, you do life with people that are single, you end up getting married. <laughs> we don't have a singles group. You say, I, I think maybe God would have me to start one. Now, you've got to go about it the right way. You've got to get with Brother Tim and let us go through the process and show you how to do it. We need people who want to help other people to connect to God's church, to walk with God, and grow deeper in their spiritual lives.